Welcome to KidTech, the series which goes behind the scenes with the people and companies shaping the digital kids sector. This is Dylan Collins, CEO of Super Awesome, and today we are doing a particularly special and, dare I say it, innovative show uh, where I am in London, Super Awesome's head office, and I am speaking to Kim Hart, uh, managing ed- editor of Axios, Sarah Fisher, media reporter in Axios, who are coming to us hopefully live and direct from Washington, D.C. Hello. Hi. Um, guys, you have covered uh, the intersection of kids and digital media and sort of what the internet is doing. And I thought it would be really interesting to talk about some of the stats and figures and trends that came out of PwC's Kids Digital Media Report uh, that was released earlier in the week. Um, I would love to sort of creatively ask you to summarize the whole thing, but I think that would be a little bit unfair. So to begin, I think one of the biggest trends and, and, and the thing that you know people have been remarking to me most during the week is that this report, PwC, are calling out that about 40% of all new internet users in 2018 were children. Um, does that, is that surprising? Is that shocking to you? It is. I was, I was blown away by that number just by it's something that we take for granted, that we think of the internet as kind of being uh, an older kid and adult kind of technology. But the amount of uh, children, young children, getting online and taking advantage of it in ways that we could never have thought possible even 10 years ago is, is just, it's, it continues to surprise me. Yeah, I agree. I was definitely shocked by it. And especially once you hear that it is the case, you think about what types of internet are young kids being exposed to that could make the stat that high. And then you realize mm. it's internet-connected devices like your smart speakers or even a smart thermometer or whatever mm. uh, that are bringing kids online in ways that might not be them having access to a cell phone or a computer quite yet, but they're still engaging with the internet. And right. I think the other thing that I found really interesting here was just the amount, the increase across the board for all age groups of kids of the hours spent consuming anything on the internet. And it looks like it's around, you know, between 20 and 30% from age five up to age, or age three, actually, up to age 15. And that seems like a pretty high margin to be growing in the span of maybe, of what, four years. Yeah, I mean, it really seems as if they are absolutely taking over, you know, because as you say, it's, it's, it's not just that they're going online in greater numbers, they're spending more time there. They are essentially sort of making it their own, despite, I suppose, the internet not really being designed for them um, in the first place. There's a a really interesting graph in this report, um, which talks about the digital privacy laws, which I guess is sort of the the various kind of government reactions to this specific point, right, that we're seeing, which was originally being led in the US with COPPA, and and now we're seeing in Europe and the rest of the world. and it's it's sort of creating this privacy framework for children, which we've never seen exist anywhere else. But Sarah, we're seeing kind of digital privacy being talked a lot about in the mainstream adult market. Um, do you want to sort of talk about any of the parallels that you're seeing? I mean, do you think what's happening in the kids space is ultimately going to get reflected in, in the adult media market at some point in the future? I think so. I mean, one of the interesting things that we see when it comes to uh, privacy is that in the U.S. in particular, it's very sectioned off. You evaluate privacy by group of people or industry, whether it's HIPAA for healthcare or it's COPA for children. Um, We have 
special financial data laws. And when you described the growth of children's privacy laws abroad in places like China and India, it makes me wonder, are other places around the world looking to a sectional approach the way that the U.S. is? And you obviously see this uh, is not the case in Europe. You know, Europe has one sweeping data privacy law that all industries adhere to. But Europe does have GDPR Kids, which is a provision within that law special for children. Mm. And so are we going to go a route as a globe where we have countries that do sectioned off privacy laws and kids are one of those sections? Or are we going to go the route that's more like Europe where countries do these sweeping laws um, with a provision for kids? And it's unclear where the world moves, but I think that um, the way that we evolve thinking about privacy, either holistically or by section, um, will be it will have a huge impact on how companies operate around the world. If you need to adhere to a certain type of law for every industry in India, but you don't in Europe, I mean, where are you more likely to feel confident in your compliance structure? So I'm curious about that. And I also think that that brings into question sort of Facebooks and Googles and the major tech companies, which are not synonymous with the phrase digital privacy, uh, even on a good day. And is this, I mean, you know, one of the questions that often comes up when we're talking about kids and what's going on here is that, you know, will kids and, and what's happening in the kids space ultimately lead to the undermining of Facebook and Google's business model long term, right? Because if essentially we are putting in place privacy laws for children, which is saying, hey, you can't be tracked, no one is going to capture your data. Long term, doesn't this mean they grow up and become much more reluctant to share their data with everything? Uh, do, do you think that's a possibility? I think it could be a possibility. I think that if we develop a framework now where kids um, feel as though their data is protected, then when they turn 18, I don't think they're, they're magically going to feel like their data is um, no longer subject to having those same rights. Uh, I think about, you know, my parents are in the medical field. I think about how we manage this with medical records. Mm. And, you know, doctors have to hold on to medical records of children up until they're 21, and then you can release them, and they're gone forever if they wanted to be gone forever. Um other industries have provisions about how you manage and handle children's data up until the day they turn a certain age, whether it's 18 or it's 21. Um, and the industries have evolved to account for those types of regulations. So I can see that happening um, with the tech industry as well. Google and Facebook, they're going to have to evolve. And does that mean that they take a business hit? They might. But it's going to have to become a part of their reality. And I think YouTube has uh, long been synonymous with the idea of online video. It was really the first uh, major video platform. Uh, it became what anyone, when you go to think about, when you go online and look for a particular video, the first place you go is YouTube because any like chances are, anything will be there, whether it be a clip that ran yesterday, uh, a, a new show that someone is uh, producing, or a clip that you're trying to find a TV clip from 15 years ago. And so I think that um, YouTube has been able to kind of ride a wave of just being the place to go and the place where there really hasn't been a lot of alternative. 
But as uh, people who grew up in the original YouTube era are also growing up and having children of their own and maybe are a little surprised and disillusioned and disappointed by some of the content that they are seeing their children mindlessly consuming and the content that's being served to them by algorithms that they don't feel like they have control over, I think they're becoming more aware of uh, the dangers of that and also looking for and being more open to other alternatives uh, for more quality control content. And I think um, to Sarah's point just a minute ago about the, you know, the expectations of kids and their data collection, as part of this uh, report, um, the key concern of parents online is uh, 50% say that companies collecting information about what their kids are doing online is a big concern. So I think that that is not lost on them. And I think that, you know, whether kids actually latch onto that as they grow older, well, it remains to be seen. But the fact that that is such a big concern is also driving this other data point in the report that's saying the biggest winners of kids' digital ads expansion will be by compliant content and YouTube and uh, VOD content. Mm. But I think the fact that uh, compliant content is now getting a lot of attention um, and is becoming a priority for uh, for um, content providers from from Disney to Nickelodeon to, you know, even the ones who have never really dabbled in that space before is telling. And do, do you think that this can become an even more political issue? I mean, we've seen Elizabeth Warren talking about digital privacy and what's going on in Silicon Valley. Do you see this conceivably coming on to the mainstream political agenda, particularly given that we've got a fairly major election coming up next year? I think privacy is already definitely on the mainstream uh, radar, thanks to Facebook and the Cambridge Analytica scandal, uh, you know, in the past couple of years and the backlash that it's received uh, in Washington, which I think surprised a lot of people because there have been a lot of privacy breaches in the past that really kind of don't get noticed. It's like, well, that's just, a, you know, the cost of doing business online. Um, I think that really hit a nerve because of the co- the connection back to the 2016 presidential election as well. But I, I don't know that, uh, I'm not that optimistic that we're actually going to see action in that arena, because even a year ago, it seemed almost like all the political will in the U.S. anyway was really uh, leading into the possibility and a pretty likely possibility of having a national privacy legislation or national privacy law being developed or at least getting somewhere on that. Maybe it Mm. it most likely would never be as sweeping as Europe's GDPR and probably not be as uh, inclusive, but even some more tailored uh, pieces of legislation and more tailored rules, especially for the big platforms and kids Uh, privacy is kind of low-hanging fruit and that it's really hard to argue against that. It's hard to argue against saying that children under the age of 18 who are the most vulnerable in a lot of senses, but especially online, should have specific rules that are carved out specifically for them. Um, But despite that, we've really seen a lot of effort stall in Congress, and that's left it up to the companies to say, well, we can do this on our own. We're going to put in our own controls. We're putting in our own um, uh, new controls for parents so that they feel uh, more in the driver's seat with uh, the content that they are consuming and purchasing or allowing their children to see. But while I so I while I think it's part of the mainstream conversation, I don't think it's translating to real action. I think the way even a lot of uh, very politically involved uh, activists really were hoping for to were hoping to see in 2019. Uh, I couldn't agree more with everything. Do do you think it's more likely then that, you know, you you mentioned YouTube a little while ago, Kim. Do you feel that it's more likely given that, you know, YouTube and its issues around content and sort of algorithmically driven content become much more of a kind of a, a potential political flashpoint 
I mean, when when you see sort of you know, and, and the report calls out calls out just sort of how big um, YouTube is within the kids space. I mean, it's effectively the biggest kids platform in the world, despite not having officially any kids on it. Um, and and you guys have written a lot about this at Axios. Do you feel that you know there's a potential that that YouTube does get regulated or broken up from Google, or or something happens around that just because of the content for kids? Um, I think that it's already becoming a huge political flashpoint just in the content in general that mm. it um, th- that it hosts. Um, you know, the New York Times wrote a big story about um, how content has uh, been able to radicalize uh, younger younger people in the generation. Um, there's also been um, a lot of controversy over YouTube's decision to not take down particular content, um, uh, Facebook as well. But YouTube has really been, even in the past two weeks, really the center of a lot of debate and high emotions around whether YouTube is making the right call and what it takes down and what it doesn't. Now, to be clear, this is a really hard um, line for YouTube to walk and having that editorial control and being the judges of, or the judges, I should say, of what should stay and what should go. And that's why they've really refrained and tried to avoid that for as long as possible. But because they are so pervasive um, and because they are the go-to platform for content of all times, they are really having to wake up to the fact that that means that it's being used for nefarious purposes as, as well and for to deliberately harm other people. Um, and that's something that YouTube is still grappling with. They're they're not. They are working hard on it. There, I, 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 there's. It's not an easy answer, and I don't know what the, how that's all going to play out. But I think that because of that, and because it's become more of a known problem, that parents are becoming much more careful about what they allow their children to see on YouTube, and that eventually does trickle down to politics and some mm. sort of political action. I mean, I have um, a three-year-old and a five-year-old, and I. You know, I admit when they, you know, when I need to reward them for good behavior or for potty training or for something, doing a chore, a lot of times they will ask for a video on my phone and they know exactly how to go to the YouTube app. They know exactly Mm -hmm. how to pick something that they want and what they enjoy watching. But I have learned that I have to watch it very carefully because the algorithm then serves them up something that I wasn't intending for them to watch. And it might not be something that I want. It's usually a doctored kind of uh, video that uses familiar characters so that to kind of make it seem like it's safe. But the words are not actually safe and or, or it has subtitles that people don't understand or it's in a different language that I don't know what they're saying, neither do the kids. And so I think it's really hard. Um, I think parents are really waking up to that. And I am much more willing now than I was even um, a couple of years ago to pay more for subscription VOD products that I know have been mm. curated, have been vetted um, in terms of the content, then I know I can trust that they are not, that's not harmful content. And I know that I'm not alone in that when it comes to other parents. And I think and there were a couple of great slides in this report that looked um, particularly on the investment side going into kids' content and how that, I mean, almost counterintuitively with more ads, digital advertising going into the kids' space, the majority of content investment dollars are actually going into content behind some sort of subscription wall, be it a Disney+, Plus, be it a Netflix, be it an Amazon, um, or whatever else. Sarah, what what do you make of that sort of contradiction? Um, I mean, is is uh, how how do you think that plays out over the next four or five years? Yeah, we have a very similar debate in the news industry right now. Whereas the economics of 
content have made it so that people want to invest in subscriptions over advertising, especially online content. And because of that, people worry that we're going to be limiting access to news and information to people who can pay for it. And you're seeing a similar thing happen to safe content with kids. People worry that you're going to be limiting access to good, solid content to families that can afford to pay for these subscription video on-demand services. In the news industry, we talk about how can we create a advertising-supported news ecosystem that's going to have quality. That's the biggest, the biggest question here is where can we mm. find the quality? Because advertising-supported um, content doesn't necessarily need to have quality all the time to get the reach and frequency that you need. And so there's a lot of things being done. You see states like New Jersey that are investing public dollars and funds into ad-supported news content. You see um, advocates who are asking for more government dollars into things like NPR and PBS, which aren't necessarily all advertising-funded but state-funded. Like, the the funding mechanism is huge here. So when we think about kids— you know, you do have a lot of investment in Disney Plus, and Viacom has created Noggin for kids, in AT&T's Warner Media. They're all going to be investing in these kid-friendly shows um, for subscriptions. But there is a worry that if you can't pay for it, what are you going to? Your kid is going to default to YouTube. So the next step of the equation is how do we create advertising-friendly, compliant channels that people can access for free that still have really good high-quality content. And mm. um, there's no real big solution for it right now. I think there's a lot of experiments. Um, Kim has reported a lot on how um, a similar conversations are happening right now, actually, at the FCC with television. You know, we are finding that a lot of the really good, high-quality content is going to these subscription services. And it means that the television uh, networks that are sort of bound to decades-old regulation, they're not able to really create the types of content that appeals to kids right now. So, like, how do we bend the rules so that that ad-supported content appeals to kids? It's a a huge, huge uh, Jenga game, puzzle game, if you will. But I think that the hope, the promise, the silver lining is that it's not a Jenga game that is only left to kids' content. We're thinking about it with news and information. We're thinking about it with health information. Um, And so it's a bigger industry problem that we're trying to collectively solve. But I think to your point, Sarah, you mentioned uh, TV and broadcasters. Uh, They've been, you know, really, they're in a unique bind because they are bound in exchange for using the airwaves that allows them to broadcast their content to every household in America. They are bound to public interest standards um, and certain requirements for the type of content that they produce. And it has to be uh, within, they, they have specific requirements for educational information uh, information uh, content for children within specific times of day uh, that are pretty rigorous. Um, and they have argued that they should not be bound to those standards anymore, specifically with regards to children, children's content, because they're increasingly competing with the big platforms and cable uh, content providers and their own streaming services who do not have to abide by those rules and it puts them at an economic ad- disadvantage. However, I think that they also, some pr- broadcasters, particularly the smaller ones, do see that there's an opportunity here. Because they are bound by those standards, they know how to create vetted and quality content for children. They know what how to appeal to those audiences, what they like, what parents are most concerned about, because they've been doing this for decades. And so I think that um, finding new technological avenues for 
getting that content that they're already producing, even though the the share of viewers on over-the-air broadcasts and that they're getting through their cable packages might be, uh, you know, slowing down or dwindling compared to what the, the audiences that are going online and to other streaming and VOD services. I think that there's an opportunity there to, and what we're seeing through with like ATSC and other technologies that they're thinking about, how do we leverage what we're already doing and just finding new ways to reach the audiences that we know want these services? You know, we we no longer have sun, Sunday or Saturday after Saturday morning cartoons, I should say. We know Sesame Street is no longer a thing for kids the way that it was when I was growing up. And there's still a big audience for that, a big demand for that. It's just a matter of getting it in front of the right people. So smart. So true. Mm. You, I mean, both of you guys um, deal with um, representatives and, and, and various sources within all of the technology companies, um, sort of Facebook, Amazon, Google, Netflix. Um which would you say, for, from each of your opinion uh, or perspective, has a better understanding of children and the topics surrounding this? I mean, they all have, you know, either um, deliberate or accidental involvement in the kids' ecosystems. And, and I mean, I don't think there's a single one of these companies that has anything resembling a chief children's officer. <laughs> but and uh, arguably they should they should all have that's it. a great but, idea actually yes, yes you should pitch that yes i i, I have many times um <laughs> but i'm curious what you know whether you ever get a sense from your reporting on those companies whether one in particular stands out as having more of more of an understanding the subscriptions stand out hmm. because the trend here is that there are so many subscription services that are being created that in order to win market dollars, you need to adhere to a broad family demographic. And so the subscriptions have an incentive to really push out quality kids' content that kids are going to want to consume. The platforms, they don't have a subscription uh, in mind when they're thinking about how they're managing content. They have engagement and selling ads in mind. Well, kids and kids' data, because of COPA, means that you can't sell ads against the stuff that the kids are consuming. So there's no point in a strategic investment. I've never, correct me if I'm wrong, I've never heard of a new kids show, focus show coming out of Facebook or coming out of YouTube in, intentionally for that reason. Um, and then if you take a look at the subscription platforms, I mean, Disney is really what's going to be the star here. They mm. have said that they want to invest strategically in family-friendly programming through their subscription video-on-demand platform, Disney Plus, which comes out next year. And they've said that their commitment to it can be measured in how they are juxtaposing it against its other subscription entity, which is Hulu. They want to focus so heavily on kids that they're separating out the service from Hulu, which will be adult-focused programming. If they didn't have that intention in mind and creating like a family-friendly kids destination in mind, they would have just combined the two. Mm, but that's not mm. their approach. And so I think that's where you're going to find the most high-quality kids' content uh, moving forward. And I definitely think in the race for people's streaming budgets, they are going to be at a, a very big advantage over the platforms like Netflix and Hulu because, let's face it, people have kids. People have to provide content for kids. People, parents are digital babysitters. I think what? Netflix should be worried, actually, about Disney. Yeah. About the uh, Disney uh, taking their stuff away from Netflix and saying, we can make our own platform here that can be, um, you know, exactly what people expect when when they see Disney content. I think it's, it's going to be very successful. 
I, I noticed neither of you actually mentioned Apple in in that sort of list, and because which are between the two, right? I mean, they're they're not. I mean, yes, they've they're a subscription, but they're certainly not an ad company. You know, fundamentally, they're a physical device company, and they're they have sig- that, yeah. yeah, right. They're they've signaled that they are going into content and going into kids, and I think they hired Tara Sorensen, who who ran kids content in Amazon. Where do you think they play out in all of this? There's a reason I didn't mention Apple or Amazon. And that's because their content plays are created to bring users into a much larger environment. For Amazon, it's really memberships that lead to commerce. And for Apple, it's you know subscription services that lead to greater use of the hardware product. And so their ultimate end goal is actually not to be content businesses. Their end goal is to be commerce and hardware businesses. And for that reason, they don't feel the need to, quite frankly, compete to the same extent as I think you're going to find between WarnerMedia, Disney, and Netflix. Mm. When it comes to Apple, they have struck a deal with Sesame Street to air some programming there. Uh, They've said that they want to commit more to children's programming. Hiring Tara is an example of that. But it's not anywhere near going to be the focus of their, their platform. The reason they're doing it is because it makes economic sense for a family to invest in the subscription um, that they hope will then help that family invest in iPhones down the line. Amazon is the same thing. Amazon provides video as part of its Prime membership so that you're going to buy more goods. They're going to provide just enough kids' content so that a family is going to feel comfortable buying that Prime subscription, but they are no, uh, in no way looking to really sell a kid's um, content destination. It's, it's just not aligned with their priorities. That makes sense. Mm. So I want to um, ask you guys sort of a, a general kind of wrap-up question on the, uh, the report because, you know, it's, it's a very, very broad disruption that is happening and that's emerging in the kid space. And it, it's touching technology companies, media companies, content owners, advertisers, regulators, etc., I mean, there's a lot of surprises in this report, but who do you think, if you were going to pick one sector or one group that was reading this report and kind of looking at it going, wow, this is really going to change our view for what we think we're going to be doing over the next five years, who, who would that be? Who, who, does, who does this report shock the most? That's a great question. I have two answers. I think the obvious answer is technology companies because they're the ones that are going to be subject to a lot of the rules about digital advertising and digital content standards. I think the not-so-obvious answer here is the advertisers and the brands, and that's because they, at the end of the day, are the ones that are putting their investments into these platforms. And so one could argue that if they valued creating a high-quality environment for for, for kids' content, then they would be investing their dollars accordingly. This is, by the way, a very similar argument, like I said before, to what's happening with the news industry. Mm. You find that a lot of people are looking at brands and saying, you're not supporting quality news when you're running programmatic ads on these fringe websites. And so I think it definitely hits technology companies the hardest and obviously the regulators that need to figure out what to do. But I wouldn't let advertisers off the hook either. And I think to your point about the regulators, Sarah, that was what came to my mind and that 
while I don't think that it's actually going to uh, have much of an impact in spurring them to take action any sooner, I think it does continue to build a narrative for them that this is a growing market and where a lot of money is flowing into and a, lar- a, a big piece that they need to pay attention to specifically with privacy and not just privacy, but antitrust and the larger uh, how do we look at the impact big tech is having on society and our youngest uh, members of society. And so I think looking and as we all know, Congress and regulators tend to follow the money like everyone else does. And they tend to be more drawn and more eager and interested in looking at um, things that need to be done in the largest market. So the more money and the more interest from the corporate side that goes into this space will only pique their interest more. Mm, I think you're right. Um, and, you know, a lot of this in some respects sort of reminds me of, you know, how big tobacco sort of rose and fall in the, in the uh, rose and fell rather in the 70s and 80s, uh, where there was just a grand swell and it wouldn't go away, it wouldn't go away and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually it became something sort of very, very insular, but extremely profitable operating in small, dark niches. And I do wonder if, if sort of in, in, in 30 years time, we're looking back at you know, a report like this, um, you know, as being sort of the very beginning of when the tech companies had to start retrenching and retrenching and retrenching um, because of the issues around and, sort of content. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I and think that the biggest the biggest difference between what we're seeing now and where we were with tobacco is with tobacco, you started to see a very regular drumbeat of scientific research linking mm-hmm. tobacco to negative health effects. Right now, we just don't have enough research, scientifically founded research on the impact of technology, of devices, of content, their interaction with uh, w- with the internet on the kids. And so the more we, there are some longitudinal studies starting now and have been underway for a couple of years. And as we start to see more real solid um, evidence of the impact or no impact, it's it's hard to know. Um, mm. But I think that when, when there's more concrete um, information about the broader implications, then that's when we'll start to see whether uh, which direction this really goes to. And that's where we'll start to see maybe more comparisons that you just made with tobacco. Um, I think uh, potential inspiration for a future PwC report, um, children (laughs) versus tobacco. Um, Well, Kim Hart, managing editor in Axios and Sarah Fisher, media reporter in Axios. Thank you very much for joining me on Kid Tech this week. Our pleasure. Thank you, Dylan.